right. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Journeyman Fire podcast. This is episode 11. Joining me today is Rick George. Uh, how you doing, Rick? I'm good, brother. How are you, man? Good. Uh, so tell us about yourself. I am uh, I'm retired two years off the job. Uh, was been in the, I've been in the fire service for roughly 29 years. Um, I, uh, it, it's always been a dream to do it. I, I didn't have the most virtuous of beginnings. I was, uh, uh, well, what, what could you say? I was a, I was a thug when I was younger. Um, just your everyday garden variety, common street thug. And, uh, I was really lost and, uh, got involved in drugs, alcohol, and, uh, violent behavior hung out with a very dangerous crowd. Um, and all the things that are associated with that, uh, upon getting sober in 1987, um, which means for all you mathematicians out there, God willing, this year will be 32 years of sobriety for me uninterrupted, um, no relapses. And, uh, that, that's just a, that's just a gift. That's a blessing. My life changed. Uh, my mom presented me with this book and it reminded me I wanted to be a fireman ever since I was a kid. Problem was I couldn't pass the entrance exam, the drug test. Um, and I wasn't willing to cut my hair. And uh, everybody that knows me know I'm, knows I'm bald now. You know, I, I have no hair, but um, I had hair down to my lower back um, for a very long period of time. So God does have a sense of humor. And uh, I joined the fire service and experienced a lot of ups and downs through the fire service. It got me involved in uh, teaching. Um, I got a, a, a friend of mine, Bruce Clark, uh, gave me a chance to teach through our fools. Um, I joined the Palm Beach County Fools, and that changed my career. That actually saved my career. The Fools Organization, the Fraternal Order of Leatherhead Society, saved my career. Uh, the teaching came natural, just like firefighting, because uh, number one, because I do believe that, that was my calling. That was my purpose in life. But number two, um, I think that all of that side stuff had a lot to do with developing me and refining me to become the type of fireman that I was going to be and to be used the way that God was going to use me. Um, I, I worked in building construction for a long time. And I have an extensive background in building construction, everything from residential to commercial to high rise. We uh, built a lot of stuff. I worked my way through a construction company. All of that stuff came into play with fighting fire. I didn't understand it and didn't recognize it at first. I just thought it was like this natural intuition, but that no, that's not so. I, I knew how buildings came together, so I knew how they were going to come apart. As a result, I questioned a lot of things, but I didn't know what I was questioning and why I was questioning. It had not fallen into place yet. And that did not occur until I got involved with the fools. And then I fast forward. You know, I, I grew up in the fire service at a time where you just kept your mouth shut. You didn't open your mouth because the beating that was soon to ensue for opening your rookie mouth was coming quickly. You know, and if you couldn't hear the thunder through other people, you would feel the lightning. Um, so that was uh, that was my beginning. And my beginning started out in Belglade at the peak. It was Belglade and Pahokee at the peak of the uh, AIDS epidemic. That was ground zero where the epidemic, where the, where the, the disease, the virus was traced back to. That was the, uh, that was the gateway. It's where it was introduced into our country. And it was because of the sugarcane and um, the bringing population in to harvest the sugarcane. So we brought 
uh, Haitians, Jamaicans, um, a lot of people, because, you know, mining sugarcane is, uh, is, is uh, very arduous. It, it is very difficult, hard, dirty work. And um, these people were looking for money and they would be brought in. Now everything is me mechanized. I mean, they still have some labor, but it's changed quite a bit. And that, uh, that was my introduction into the fire service. I, I volunteer also up in Georgia. I have a, a place up in Georgia and I volunteer up there too. Uh, not so much anymore. Now, now I, uh, I pretty much teach and um, consult and do some stuff with corporate America with regards to resiliency. But I had a 24-year career with Palm Beach County, and um, it's been a it's been quite a love affair, man. You talked about the fools saving your career. Um, I'm not sure everybody knows what exactly the fools is. Can you speak about what they did, what they do, how, and how that training di differs from the training fire departments put on? Uh, absolutely. The uh, Fools was created in 1995 by a bunch of brothers in Orlando. I would name them, but I'm so old, I would leave somebody out and I don't want to slight anybody. So it was a group of guys in uh, the Orlando area. Uh, not all of them worked for Orlando. And um, they noticed that the brotherhood was fractured, especially in Florida. And so they created the Fraternal Order of Leatherhead Society, and the acronym is Fools. And it was to uh, improve and to create this uh, brotherhood. And if people aren't aware of this now, there are not just strengths in numbers. The strength comes from the brotherhood. You can have numbers, but if everybody is at odds, you have a giant problem. So the, the Fools was created to develop that dynamic like rope that intertwines and enmeshes, you know, and in turn affects the love for the job and the job itself. And so the way that it affected uh, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue uh, through the Fools prior to that training was a, uh, they, they used to call it like the blue flu. Uh, when training would come around, our, our sick day use would just skyrocket. And so it was the punitive kind of training, the kind where they would run you through training drill after training drill or a training drill that was so incredibly difficult that the goal was that if you weren't pissing down your leg, it wasn't good enough, which we know today is failure-based training model. It uh, doesn't work. And so we stepped in with uh, the fools, stepped in with a more a coaching style and a, what we call now a success-based training. And uh, the, what that means is that when you're doing something, you're taught how to do it. And we paid great attention to detail and we spoke to you like a brother. We didn't speak to you as if you were a subordinate or incompetent. Uh, there was no, um, there was no adversity. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Uh, we were all happy to be together and lunch. We typically, one of the guys, I think it was uh, Buddy Yarborough came up with the idea of including a lunch in it. And that just solidified everything because now guys got to sit around and talk to each other and talk about the training and they got to see other guys going through it as we rotated through. And uh, if you were injured, we were encouraging you to watch because you would be able to see things that would be beneficial for you and beneficial for the class. So that, that blew our training up. 
the instructors of the Palm Beaches could not get a training class sold out. And here we were, this organization called Fools, and we were just blowing things up. Hundreds of people would come from all over to come to our classes after they started hearing about it. We would bring instructors in from all over the country. Um, I mean, you know, this, uh, this organization that I was invited to join saved my career because I was at a toxic firehouse. I, I was ready to quit the fire service. I was done. If this was what being a fireman was about, I'm out. Do not include me in this. And so my introduction was we had a, uh, a lieutenant. He floated in. And um, he came in and took over. Our, our officer was off duty. And uh, I was at a firehouse where uh, the engine truck rescue, none of, nobody sat together to eat, no, let alone talk. And um, it was a very, very busy station. Um, I have been gr given grief for a lot of calls that we ran, but the that's the truth of the matter. We would run 19 to 20 something calls a shift. The thing is we were running in other areas. We didn't run so that the credit, the call credit was given to another zone versus just given being credit to us. Cause people were saying, well, you would be in one of the most, you would be in the busiest station in the country. Try to get past that. Here's the deal. We seldom saw the firehouse, seldom ate at the firehouse. And when we did, we did not eat together. And when we got back, whether it was two, three, four in the morning, on the chalkboard were the duties that we were expected to complete. Um, so it, it was that kind of uh, an atmosphere. So this lieutenant floats in. His name is John Flynn. He floats in and uh, he starts talking about, the, he, he has a station meeting first thing in the morning. What are we going to do for dinner? And uh, I just smiled. And um, because I've been trying to get to this point, and here's this guy, an authoritative figure, you know, and guys are like, yeah, we usually do our own thing. He said, that's great, but today we're all eating together. We're eating lunch together and we're eating dinner together. And if you don't want to eat, it doesn't matter. It's five bucks a man. And I was, I was digging it, bro. I, I mean, I, I really was. I was like, ah, I like this guy. You know, I like this whole, this is what being a fireman is about. And that was just the start. Later on, this guy's in the tarmac out back. We have a, a drive-around driveway for the apparatus, and he's out back of the firehouse playing bagpipes. And I hear this, and I'm like, what? And I walk back out there, and I just sat down and just listened to him, and I just thought, this is, this is I must be dreaming. This is unbelievable. Those, those two little things, sitting down and eating together, and this guy playing bagpipes was a traditional instrument for the fire service and playing songs that I had heard before but didn't know anything about, it was, it was awesome. And then he starts writing down these initials as we started talking throughout the shift on the board, FTM, PTB, KTF, RFB, you know, and I, I thought, oh boy, this guy's got Tourette's or something, you know, I, I, he's explaining what these initials mean. You know, um, it, it used to be initially it was, F the mutts, protect the brothers, and now it's evolved into uh, for the men, protect the brothers. Uh, but it was something that was far more creative than that and explicative. And, um, and the KTF is keep the faith and the RFB is remember fallen brothers, which is how appropriate is that we are sitting here doing this interview today on September 11th, 2019. I just finished watching the Memorial live stream from New York where they went through the times where everything occurred. And I've been sitting here 
playing that back in my head and, and listening to names like David Weiss, you know, and a- Andy Fredericks. And I, I'm hearing names of people that, that I knew and that I had met, you know, I didn't know well, but I, I knew them. And, and it's an inspiration. 18 years, 17 years after 18 years after an event that occurred that was probably the most tragic event in the history of our country with regards to us being attacked, the murders that occurred that day. And while it was polarizing, it brought the fire service closer together. So through this great tragedy, it brought a sense of brotherhood that just had a synergistic effect with the Fraternal Order of Leatherhead Society. And it blew up and turned into this international organization. And it has now got chapters all over the world. And uh, while some chapters are known as drink clubs and it's a fraternity boys club kind of thing, that's not the way it was intended. And that's not what it did. Uh, My chapter put on training in the early years through 2001, 2002, all the way up to probably, you know, just recently till 2010 when guys started, you know, traveling and trying to turn it over to other people, you know, because an entity has got to be re-energized with new blood. It has to be, you know, that's called mentoring, you know, and, and the leadership of the men prior mentoring these other people and they get to learn the struggles about trying to make something successful. And there's value in all of that. So the fools had a uh, very big impact on my life. And that, that's, that's how it came about. And um, matter of fact, I'll be leaving this Sunday to the international convention in Denver and be proud to be a part of that. You know, it's just, uh, you know, how special is it to have men that have a vision, see something, they put it into works and they don't think anything of it. It's, they never, they were never in it to create what it is now. They were just in it to create the brotherhood in their immediate area. And here we are, this International Association of Fraternal Order of Leatherhead Society. The convention travels across the country to different places every year. And, you know, we're, we're not just bonded as, as International Association of Firefighters. We're bonded through a brotherhood, you know, a fraternal order. And, um, and that's very important and, um, because it, that, that instills the love of the job. It's not for the purpose of I'm a fireman and I wear a badass T-shirt that says I fight what you fear, you know, and, and that, that's not being a fireman. Being a fireman is not just honing your craft. Being a fireman is not just making grabs. Being a fireman is being there for people when they're having their worst moment in life. And you get to make an impact on them. Being there and being thoughtful and mindful of that. When a brother is struggling, it doesn't mean that if he's cheating on his spouse or his drinking has escalated, that you protect him and insulate him. It means that you try to, you do the hard work, man. You do the hard work. You get involved in this man's life and you try to help him in a direction that it needs to go in. You know, this is about morality, you know, and there there are those that would scoff at that. I really don't care. I did the same thing. I think that's part of the maturity process. 
But it's important that those of us that come before honor that vision because you know, I, th- I think God works in, in very big ways, in ways that most of us, uh, we can't really wrap our minds around. But when somebody explains it in a particular way, it lights that bulb off and it allows you to realize you're a part of something that's larger than that. It's no coincidence that I'd always had a desire to be a fireman. I'm the son of a Cuban immigrant who fled here under political asylum back in the 50s. His, his homeland, Cuba, was overthrown uh, by a dictator, and they were murdering people. It was a mass murder. Che Guevara was murdering people. He fled here, and that led to me being born in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a first-generation fireman. I, I don't know where that comes from, but I can tell you it wasn't, it's a cool job. There was a passion, something deep that burned in me. And as things were revealed to me, things continued to grow. And the Fools was a very, very big part. I, uh, I'm in the fire service, all these struggles, uh, the blue flu through teaching and getting involved in the Fools. And then this divorce occurs and the divorce is the caveat that sends me to being diagnosed with PTSD. Unusual diagnosis from a divorce, right? Well, here's why this is important that people understand. Uh, The divorce is your safety net. When you have a safety net, this is my family. Um, This is where we love each other, where we talk, where we get together, we share meals. There may be some discord, but we are blood. We are blood, which is a little different than the brotherhood of the fire service. So when that happened and things started to go sideways, my kids are being, you know, torn and, uh, it, uh, it broke me. And so what that did was it, it brought up all that, uh, the hypervigilant state that I had been living in, which is what makes us a good fireman, but the switch didn't shut off. So my diagnosis was a good thing because it gave me direction. All of these things that I had gone through previously, um, uh, just, just the tragedies, the, the stuff that you'd normally, you know, the smell of burning flesh, the dead people, you know, missing a grab, not being able to hold on to them because their skin is burnt and they're slipping out of your hand like they're covered in Vaseline. Um, you know, watching men take their own lives that you work with. Um, it, it, you know, it just goes, just goes on and it leaves you in this dark place. Like, what's the sense? What, what, what does it matter? Look at this. Really? There is a God? No, there's not. You know, it left me in a really, really ugly place. Um, I, I do have to uh, preference all that with that um, when when I was an ordinary street thug, um, my friends were being murdered. Um, there were there were there were some ugly things that were going on. I lived in an ugly world, so I carried that with me. But that is not what created the crisis of PTSD. I think it laid the foundation in my mindset. And so my mindset dictated this emotional withdrawal, and this emotional withdrawal contributed to um, incorporating some of this stuff into my life as if, as if it was my personal tragedy when it wasn't. And so it was a twisted up way of thinking that led me to my PTSD. And so left with, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was sober at the time, I think 19, maybe 20 years. Um, 18 years, somewhere around there. So I didn't, I didn't have drugs and alcohol to fall back on. I have, when, when I came, when I started as a fireman, I was a clean machine, bro. 
there were no drugs, no alcohol, no tobacco, no nothing in me, you know, and, uh, and that, that was a constant through my entire career. So the act of suicide was a very real option to me, um, to the point that I know what gun oil tastes like. It, uh, see the, the emotion still creeps up on me when I allow it to, cause I don't suppress it. Cause it's just a sadness. That's all. I, I just, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I was doing the best that I could because back to the divorce, I can't very well go back to my firehouse, which is a bunch of hard hitting freaking type a personalities. Right. And tell them, you know, my feelings are hurt, <laughs> bro. I'd have to bid out, you know, I'd have to go somewhere else because it just wasn't, uh, in my mind that wasn't tolerated. But in reality, those guys would have embraced me. They, they did embrace me without saying a word. They knew I was struggling and they, they, they held me up, you know? And, and um, so back to the book thing, that's the, that's the preface for that. Because once I was diagnosed, I had to seek out people to make myself whole because there was an anxiety that overcame me. I couldn't keep my mask on my face. And that was emasculating because I was that guy. If it was a tough job, I wanted it. You want to put me in a freaking confined space? I'll do it. I hated it, but I'll do it just because I wanted to do it. I wanted to prove I could do it. I, that was my, my badge of, of machismo, you know, that, that, yeah, man, I'm the man. I could do it. You can throw anything you want at me. I'll take it, you know? And um, that started going away, <laughs> and it was very emasculating. I started questioning whether I was ever any good on the job and this and that, and I – as if by coincidence, I know that it wasn't, it's just, it's called providence. And that's just God's guiding grace. The way that he led me through these things, there's no way I'm an intelligent man, but I'm not that smart. He puts Pauli Capo in my life. I talk to him. He tells me about this book on combat. I read it. It's a breathing technique. I try it. It gets me through my anxiety. I start to develop it. I reach out to this guy. He introduces me to another guy that helps me work on things, which is Gavin DeBecker. They introduced me to Dr. Uh, Andy. Uh, there's two Andys. One is Dr. Andy Morgan, and the other one is Dr. Andy something. I can't remember his name. One is a Yale graduate. The other one is uh, he's Australian, and he was the, the performance director for Red Bull International. Uh, they're the guys that do the little wingsuits and do all the X games and all that. They actually train for that in their head. They have a mind gym that they go through just like the Navy SEALs do, which in turn, more people introduce me to other people. I meet SEALs. I meet guys that, that teach the SEALs, the guys that do, that are involved in the mind gym where they practice for the mental acuity and stuff, um, which is the entire game. That's the whole ball of wax. So doors were open for me. I learned this stuff. We start putting classes on because men started coming to me that had problems and asking me, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And I, of course, I was like all in, you know, and um, that in turn led me to, uh, I was joined with Bob Carpenter, who does a class um, called Drill Development. And uh, his drill development class is just, it's very well planned out. I mean, there is, there is a, he understands how adults learn and he understands how it's categorized. 
And I could see the psychological advantages of what he was doing because what I went through. So we start teaching together. We quickly realize we can't run a class of 20 students in less than, you know, a 12-hour day. And it's just exhausting because it's just me and him as the instructors. I invite Dave Gillespie through a series of events. Uh, Dave is with Peterborough, Canada. Bob Carpenter was with Miami Dade. And uh, Bob has since retired. Dave is still on the job. Now it's the three of us, and we're looking for other instructors, and we have them, but not enough to be able to teach classes. Uh, we have this. It just comes to me. I'm like, you got to write the book on this because at this point I'm doing lectures and stuff, and we're struggling to do the hands-on because we, we don't have the horses, bro. And if you're going to push people to the point of where they're breaking and their fears come out, we find out what their weakness are. You have to be there. You miss the moment, you fuck them up. Excuse my language. You make them worse than they are, you know, and, and uh, that's irresponsible and it's unacceptable. So fast forward, the book gets written, got published. Um, I believe pre-orders came out December last year. It was release date was January of this year. Uh, we did the big deal at FDIC in April, the book signing and all that. And um, the, the, the goal of the book was to create a paperback, 200 pages or less, something that's easy, guy can fold up, put in his pocket, you know, leave it on the toilet, download a chapter while he's downloading his business, you know, and, and um, in plain English, you know, uh, I actually wanted a crayon attached to each one so that each fireman could take notes. And uh, Bobby Halt decided no, because the fireman probably end up eating that crayon. And then there's a choking liability that comes with this book. So that got nixed and um, the book came out and um, I spoke previously to that. I met with, uh, I met John Spira. He reached out to me and I really liked him. And um, the man of God, just like, you know, I mean, he's a good dude. And I liked his personality. I like his approach and he does fit to fight fire. And uh, we hit it off. We talked, we were going to do a class and it, it didn't come around. And um, since that time, Fit to Fight Fire, the guys from Fit to Fight Fire and I and Firefighter Craftsmanship with uh, John McKeon and Kevin Housley um, uh, got together at Mile High last year and we did the class and I was like, we got the guys. These are them. I knew, I knew it was them before we did it, but you know, you got you to see it happen in front of you to be sure. Uh, you got to do your due diligence. And man, it was a home run. I was like, oh my God, we're in. We are in like Flint. We can teach his classes everywhere now. And um, that's what we do at fire conferences. But the fire conferences are different than what the intent of the book was for. The intent of the book was for you to learn everything about developing resiliency, the laws of adult learning, and how to create rapid pattern recognition, improve retention. Um, how to improve situational awareness within and without. What I mean is you're situationally aware of your own arousal levels from within and your situational awareness around you, the area around you. Uh, so we, uh, we did another class in Portland and it was even better. And then we did it again at, uh, at MAFSI, the Metro Atlanta Fire Conference. Um, I want to preface that uh, the, the reason that these classes are hard to do is even with a core of instructors, the student ratio is 20 people tops. 
So it is, it's a loser class as far as conferences go. They're not going to make money on it. They're going to lose money because we cannot take more than 20 students to be able to drive home the message that we're doing. So where I was going with all this, it, there's a difference between what we do at the fire conferences and what we do for fire departments. So at fire departments, we do a very similar class. The difference is we do it for your instructors and we teach them everything that we know and what we're doing when we teach at fire conferences and what we're looking for in the students and how we mitigate the different anxieties, panics, self-doubt, self-talk, arousal, internal arousal control, which is the emotional level. Um, we, we, we teach them the value of why uh, breathing and breathing and positioning, body positioning is so hard and how we utilize yoga to drive that home, how mindful meditation is how we develop attention and focus and how we can develop that into mental rehearsals. So this is what we teach fire departments. We take their instructors and we teach them how to do what we're doing. And in turn, they teach their department through their regular training you know, countywide, department-wide training, individual training, you incorporate these processes. And what you do is you develop firemen that are more apt to be able to step up during duress and not panic. They're calmer. They're, they understand what's at stake. They're, they're very aware of what's going on, and they can control this. And in, in really big, uh, you know, events, you don't have to be on the job for 20 or 30 years to be able to slow down, take everything in, recognize what's going on, run it through your, you know, your Rolodex of previous incidences, which is prime recognition decision-making. Um, it, it, it facilitates that and you can incorporate it in students from rookie school so that it helps them throughout their entire career and you've just, uh, you've developed a stronger core of a fireman. And that has a transition that also leads to an improved mental health. That's the long, kind of short version of the long story. One of the things that I think um, your book is really gonna help people with, and I, I'm not sure if you heard any of Nate Flynn's audio from his mayday in, um, in Maryland last year. Um, it sounds to me like the officer on his line never thought that this was going to be something they deal with their entire career. Um, what are you finding that firefighters aren't imagining themselves put in these positions? They just think they'll go to work. Everything will be a okay. And then when, when stress hits, they kind of just, you know, for lack of a better term, shit the bed. Um, you know, I, I've been teaching people that you have to place yourself mentally in these positions before it ever arises. Are, are you seeing more and more of that, that guys, because, you know, the job's been safer over the years traditionally than it has been in the past, that people are, are not experiencing this and, and not mentally preparing themselves for these emergencies that come up? Uh, yeah, man, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, if you're not mentally preparing yourself for things, you're missing probably 75% of the job. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman has a saying, he says that uh, amateurs focus on the hardware, professionals focus on the software. And um, what, what you're speaking to is developing the software. Now, I don't blame 
the individuals and I don't blame the fire service because this is a technique that is, while it's not a new technique, it's new to the fire service. Sitting there, going through the steps, explaining it to people audibly and then showing it to them visually and then having them do it kinesthetically. If an instructor doesn't understand the value of that, then we're failing them there. If you can't make the association with how this is going to function under duress, and we're going to gradually increase this so that you are doing it under a sub certain level of duress, so you have a baseline, you have now prepared your mind for where the body is going to go. That is one way. But on your days off, thinking about, or, or while you're at work, when the reason that we teach mindful meditation is specific to attention and focus, but we also do the transition into mental rehearsal. So what are you weak at? Okay. And then we go into that. Let's say it's search. Okay. Okay. You're in search. What's your biggest fear? You get lost. Okay. Or you come across a victim. I know that you're supposed to expect a victim. Okay. Getting back to the example, okay. Getting back to the example of search um, and finding the victim, it, it doesn't have to be a shocker. When you do that, you can sit quietly It'll take 30 seconds for the initial one. And then you gradually increase the amount of time and you have to include all of the senses. In your mental rehearsal, you're seeing yourself either from within your body or outside of your body and you're watching yourself do this search. You're in your full turnout, make sure everything is on. The key thing in a mental rehearsal is it has to have a successful outcome. Otherwise, why bother doing it? So. You're in your gear, you're feeling the weight of the pack, you know, your dexterity and your mobility and everything is limited from the gear, the smoke, the heat, you're crawling down, you go down, you're crawling, you hear yourself breathing, you can smell the rubber off the mask, taste the salt from the sweat dripping into your mouth, you know, you feel the sensation of grabbing somebody, you see yourself staying oriented in the room, you call your you know, you call your command, let them know you found the victim, where your location is. You go through the entire thing, and the detail increases every time you do the mental rehearsal. You start slow, and then you start, I mean, you start small, 30 seconds, then you increase to 45 or a minute, and then two minutes, and then five minutes, and you gradually get into greater and greater detail. So what you've done is you've shifted the mindset. And the mindset, getting it between the theta wave and the alpha wave in the brain, um, which is measured in hertz, it's the electrical activity of the brain, that's where the brain is its most suggestive. And that's why mindful meditation is so good, because it allows your brain to train it to slip into that, so that when you do the mental rehearsal, you can slip in that groove that you've learned from mindful meditation, do your mental rehearsal, and that's where the brain, I said it was its most suggestive, it cannot distinguish reality from make-believe. It assumes all of it is real because you're incorporating all of the senses and you're making it so detailed that when you go through it, it's not the first time you'll have gone through it. So your reaction and your arousal control is much greater. Your respirations in turn, because it's the arousal control, is more contained. It's more purposeful. It's not the anxiety and the excitement that's associated with, we got a victim in here, let's go get him. It's a kid. You know, everything shifts gears when it's a kid, you know, but I mean, it, it, it's one of those things, you know, I often hear people, you know, quote Andy Fredericks and, I, and I, I think it's funny, you know, the garbage man don't get excited when he comes around to see some garbage on garbage day, 
Well, with all due respect, people aren't throwing their babies out of windows. People aren't running around on fire. It's a, it's a different example. But what his point is, prepare yourself appropriately so that you can control your arousal levels and be more effective at what you're supposed to be doing. It's just been misconstrued over time. Does that make sense? Is that, did I answer your question, bro? Oh, absolutely. Yep. So, Rick, talk about, you've mentioned a couple times how we can screw up a student by teaching them wrong. What are we getting wrong in the fire service on how we're instructing students and what would a better uh, plan look like? Okay. Um, it has to be incumbent on the department when it teaches its instructors what they want it to teach, what they want them to teach. I'm going to use the state of Florida as an example because that's actually all I can really speak about with authority. In the state of Florida, you can't get your instructor one until you're six years in the job. And so they have to have a time prerequisite. That's great. You got uh, your six years on the job. You get your, uh, or actually whatever it is, I, I may be misspoken. Is it six years, Grant? I think it is. Yeah, it's six. Or is that LFTI? No, I don't even think you have to have six years on to do LFTI, but you do for the instructor part. But that's a whole nother Okay, story. so, yeah, I'm like 61, bro, and my mind is not what it used to be. Um, so back to my example, six years on the job, that's great. Well, what if you're not running fires? What if you've never taught before? What if you've never, well, I'm an instructor now. Okay, great. What are you going to teach? The state really doesn't help you with that. Oh, I can teach at the fire academy. Great. You can train monkeys. And if we're doing it the wrong way, you're going to continue to teach them the wrong way. So there is no thought has been given as to the delivery. What are you delivering? What are you bringing? What is your forte? You know, are you a jack of all trades or do you, have you actually mastered one or two disciplines? Maybe your niche is forcible entry. Maybe your niche is search. Who knows? Maybe it's working a roof, taking the top off buildings. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it's incident command. Everybody has different passions. You find one and you master it. And that's what you teach. But you got to understand when you're learning laws of adult, look, we're going to get a little into the nerdish part. Mindful meditation and mental rehearsal actually plays benefits for us because as you go up and you get older, the brain loses its neuroplasticity. In order to develop neuroplasticity, you have to stay teachable. The best way to develop neuroplasticity is through mindful meditation and through mental rehearsals. Neuroplasticity affords you the ability to develop new neural pathways. It means you can continue to learn and absorb and so by doing that, you become good at what you do. But to teach what you have become good at, you have to develop a completely different set of neural pathways to explain it in a way that people can hear it, see it, and experience it. And you can deliver exactly what it is that you know. And that comes with time. We call that mentoring. Okay? And so that's the value of it. Most people want to jump into being an instructor. I don't know, man. 
maybe it's because it's a position of authority and it brings some kind of power and it shows you that like, yeah, you're accomplished, which is great. There's nothing wrong with taking pride in your job, but there's a problem when your ego is taking over. And that, 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 you know, being an instructor, you should be the first prerequisite should be humility because what your job, you're entrusted with teaching men how to become really good firemen. You know, your, your job, and, and that's why that old saying comes from, you know, an old fireman's job is to teach young firemen how to become old firemen. And it's because they've experienced it. But through resiliency, you can teach them at a very early age and they can attain that without having to go through the process of experience. Experience is invaluable. Don't get me wrong. That's the fire service's gold standard. But look at the military. They're taking 20-somethings in leadership positions under extreme duress of life and death with lead flying, bombs blowing up. Come on, man. Lead is flying, people are dying. And these men are stepping up. That's the value of resiliency. And that's what we're trying to bring to the fire service. So we don't do a very good job of preparing our instructors to be able to deliver from that because they don't understand the laws of adult learning. They don't understand how people work. They don't understand how the brain works and they haven't mastered a specific craft to be able to speak specifically to that, you know, and fire service, I mean, training is just advancing so quickly. It has to, you know, as quickly as roof systems change, Roof operators need to change and they need to stay up. It's a constantly evolving field. You know, it's the same with forcible entry. We live in Florida, man. There's impact windows, impact doors. Uh, there, you know, there, there's a rating that's associated with this, you know, and, and there was a time where going through the wall was quicker. Well, not anymore because they're pouring the walls solid and they're putting these windows in and these doors with these multiple locking systems. And, it, you know, you have to learn how to overcome that. It takes time, you know. You know, you undercook chicken, you're going to get sick. It needs to cook for the appropriate amount of time. It's the same with farming. Yeah, exactly. I think one of my frustrations that I think we miss in the training world is instructing is different than narrating what you do. And I think sometimes we throw the newer instructors in too fast and they just try to narrate what they do and they don't understand why that fails to translate to the student. You know, you mentioned right. forcible entry, and that's another topic. Uh, when people tend to instruct, it seems like the downfall in forcible entry is rather than teach me a system to allow my brain to think about how to get from point A to point B through that, yes. that middle point, you teach me a grab bag of tricks with no process. I, you know, I, I talk about how you determine what what things you're going to teach okay so if it so okay i could speak to that real simple and if nobody has ever listened to ben schultz lecture when it comes to that part about just donning your 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 gear he does a really good job of breaking that down into steps with a time clock to show you the advantage of it. Now, all of us are familiar because we put that gear on and off so many times. We're all familiar with what he's talking about. Now he's talking about refining it to make it even quicker. And then he makes the association with this is why these seconds count. And he shows you the statistics on making grabs and where victims are. 
And so now you understand the methodology of putting your gear on. Now it makes sense why those seconds are important. And then he makes the association with the end goal of what ties it all together. So if you can't, there, there, don't feel bad if you can't do that. That just takes time. And, and as you find your niche, you, you develop it. Um, with mine, it was the entanglement, you know, and I got through the entanglement because one, I don't like confined space. Two, I don't like to be held down. Three, I've already had events with claustrophobia before. So I had to learn, okay, number one, this is the technique. This is what we want you to do. We want you to go through here. This is the technique. And at first, the wires are sparse. Then the wires get, they get, it gets worse. And then at the end, it's just a freaking nightmare. Okay. But the breathing, what you're focused on, what are you paying attention to? Are you paying attention to how uncomfortable you are and how slow this is moving? And your focus is on, I can't breathe. You're going to fail. So if we can attach the proper mindset to the methodology, it helps facilitate a successful outcome. I know it sounds kind of gobbledygooky for some of the people that might be listening, but it, it's the military calls it crawl, walk, run. We call it competence, confidence, mastery. First, you have to be competent at what you're doing. So we understand you, we're, we're you're competent at putting your gear on and you're competent at going through this entanglement. Now we're going to develop confidence in you by showing you how you can get through there when it gets extremely crazy. Okay. And the mastery of that is not that should you run across an entanglement. I mean, dude, if you have no other way to get out, but that way you're in a really ugly place. The purpose for an entanglement drill is to master your arousal control, your breathing, and your thought processing. And if I can't drive that home to you, then you should not be teaching entanglement. Because that is, that is something that guys have to slow down. They just have to go. And you know who does an incredible job with that? Jim McCormick. Jim McCormick teaches an entanglement process that is just, it's insane, bro. If you ever see one, it looks like Charlotte's Web. It is. I looked at that and I was like, I'm not going through that. Fuck that. Excuse my language. And it's funny because the way he approaches it, it's just so calm and so cool. It's no big deal. It's just like waking up in the morning and brushing your teeth, you know? And that's how confident he is in his ability to be able to teach you what you need to know to get through it. Does it, did, did that answer your question? Absolutely. Kind of? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the competent, confident mastery uh, progression. You know, I I ran across a, a Facebook post uh, in the last couple of days, and it was at a conference, and a bunch of guys were were beating up the level or lack thereof of PPE that students were wearing. And look, we we train in Florida today. It's going to be ninety two degrees with like a hundred percent humidity. Talk about yeah. not always training in your gear or train like you play mentality. Because if you don't understand what you're doing, uh, when you throw you in the game, it's not going to work out. You want to hit on that for a bit? Yeah. Um, I, I think the training in your gear is, is imperative. You have to. But you have to look at your surroundings. And so what are you training for? 
um, I'll give you an example. Uh, John Spira got some, I don't know, it looks like some medieval torture bike that he got. And, and he is on this thing in full gear, uh, wearing a blast mask. And, and it's like, it's crazy. Okay, so let me explain. I'm mean, using that. Okay, I forgot the name of the bike. It's like this bike that's out that's supposed to be like very torturous and arduous to utilize, you know, and, and it really challenges you, um, you know, cardio wise. And then the blast mask does the exact same thing. Okay, it's like being on air. Okay, and then he's in full gear on top of that. John didn't just one day decide to roll out of his bunk and do that. John has gradually built up to that. So there are days when you do PT, and uh, you'll do it in, in, in our class. When you take our class, Developing High Performance, and I say our class because it's a combined effort between tactical resiliency training, fit-to-fight fire, and firefighter craftsmanship. When you take our class, you will be doing PT, and you will not be in gear. You'll be, unless it's cold. If it's cold, you put gear on, okay? But, I mean, you're, you're going to have sneakers on, and it's to warm you up, okay? So, John, back to John's example. John conditioned himself physically. And when he, phys- when he does physical conditioning, it's in PT gear, okay? If you're in the state of Florida and you want to condition, awesome. Condition yourself and get yourself prepared for putting gear on and doing conditioning with gear on. There is a time and a place for all of that. But it, it's not doing everything at once. John physically conditioned himself and then he learned how to challenge himself mentally. So when he's ready to rip his mask off, he wants to go a little bit longer and a little bit further. So what is he doing? He's working the mental toughness aspect. And what are you telling yourself? Oh, I'm not embracing, you know, the, the, the challenge. I'm not embracing the pain. I'm not embracing, you know, the, the, the struggle, you know, you have to, it's going to be a struggle. And so you embrace it and you realize, man, I'm doing it. I'm going through this. I'm struggling right now. And that's okay. This is what I want to do. I want to challenge myself. You know, that's the purpose for doing it with that mask on or your gear on to make yourself a little bit better each time. If you're throwing people in their gear and they haven't gone through the process, it's a failure based model. You have to break everything down. It's competence. Okay. They know how to put their gear on. Okay, good. Now let's focus on developing the physical fitness aspect of it. Because if you throw people that aren't prepared for that in gear and you're doing it, telling them this is going to make you a better fireman, it's true, but they're probably going to have a heart attack in the process. And that's your fault. That's your responsibility. <clears throat> Not everybody. You know, we, we have this odd sense of fire training all fits in a box. Everybody should be able to do it. It's not the way it works, man. Everybody's different. Listen, I'm on the downward side of 5'10". I'm I'm 61 years old. Gravity's having its effect on me. All right. I'm not 5'10 anymore. And I was never going to be able to use a six foot roof hook and be able to reach, you know, a cathedral ceiling. Now you take the guy that's 6'5", 6'6". He's got a better chance at that. We are not all created equal. Your mother lied to you. You cannot do anything you want. You can attempt anything you want and be satisfied with knowing you gave it everything you got, but that doesn't make you successful at everything and anything you want to do. That's just, that's just life. Life's not fair. Some people are going to lose everything. Some people are going to lose nothing. Some people are going to be challenged mentally. Some aren't. Tragedy affects some people differently than it affects others. The fire service is not 
a level playing field. Don't, don't buy into that. All of us have our challenges. The women in the fire service can't compete the freaking lunatic men in the fire service. There are some men in the fire service that can't compete with the lunatic men in the fire service. And what I mean by lunatic men are, are, are men that are high speed, low drag. And there are women that will put men to shame with regards to that aspect. I've worked with some of them, but physiologically, we all have our limitations. When did it become a bad thing to have a limitation? That doesn't make you less. It just means that you now have to figure out a way to overcome things and know what your limitations are so that you can look at your boss and go, hey, I got this 180 pound chick in here that I need help dragging her out with. You know why? Because I'm 135 pounds, you know, and I'm in gear or I'm 180 pounds and I'm in gear. You know, I, I need help. So you need to understand that if your boss is saying you should be able to pull them out is you got the wrong boss. Something's wrong there. That's not okay because we're there for them. And if we're there for them, it means you need to understand what your limitations are. So when you get there, we can get them. Otherwise you become part of the problem. And this, we're not there to make this problem worse than it is. We're there to be smart, you know? And that's why I said, you know, our firefighter's greatest tool is this humility. You gotta be able to train, man. You gotta be able to know what your limitations are. You, perf you, you perfect your craft, you treat your body like a temple and you hone it, you make it as hard as you can make it. And then you progress it. Now we're gonna go into gear, but you gotta be smart. You can't train in a heat index of 110 degrees, you know? And expect to be successful at everything that you're doing and that that's gonna make you better. You have to condition yourself to get to that point to give whoever or whatever you're attempting to do the best successful outcome possible. Awesome. Well, <clears throat> Rick, we're going to wrap it up there. As always, you know, you made us think about a lot and kind of challenge our preconceived notions um, about some things. And can we, we just, can we talk about Portland real quick? Oh, absolutely, man. Talk about Portland because all of these guys getting all this together has finally got us to a point where we can run a class nonstop for a certain amount of hours. Okay, so Portland, it's no, it's no secret the class is out. It's a 24-hour class. You're running it straight, 24 hours. So while we cannot put you in a life-threatening situation, we can affect you through sleep and exhaustion and produce the mental fatigue, the physical fatigue, the emotional fatigue, you know, and, and all of that. And that's where we teach you and reinforce the techniques to be able to draw you back in, get you recentered and continue to move, even though it may be at a lower capacity, it's still a successful outcome. That's it. Awesome, man. Well, again, like I said, thank you so much for joining us. You, you've made us question some stuff and always make us think uh, every time I talk to you, I know I, uh, I always go back and research some stuff and look some stuff up. And uh, again, you know, this is no different. So thank you very much, Rick, for joining us. Uh, everybody, thanks again. From shimmering away On the blind side Walk glitter